Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Doug. How are you doing, Doug? I'm good, Dennis. Thanks. So the reason why I asked you to come on is uh, you're an ICU doc and you're a very busy ICU doc. And so because of that uh, position, you guys are definitely into labs. So today I would like to get your advice on uh, labs that are important for the austere environment. Awesome. Let's kind of, I guess, set the, uh, the situation. Let's say I'm going to go on a J set to, I don't know, Africa somewhere in a country in Africa. And uh, I'm going to bring a ventilator. I have uh, some monitor like a Tempest Pro uh, or a ProPack or something like that, a monitor, cardiac monitoring device. Um, I don't really have room or desire to bring like a microscope and things like that. Um, but I do know I'm, I'm probably going to need some kind of lab capability to go with my uh, some maybe some more advanced interventions like setting up a vent or or something like that. So, uh, in your experience, uh, what what labs are going to give me the biggest bang for the buck? Well, to start off with your JSET location, um, you know the first, second, and third lab that you need to have with you is um, something to test for malaria, like the Binax lab. Okay. Um, because you know that's that's one critical piece of information that will help you with diagnosis and management and evac planning. Um, that's fairly common there. Um, that, you know, can masquerade as a bunch of different things. And so if you can single out malaria, that would be super helpful. Yep. Uh, I have cases of Binax tests. Fantastic. I figured you would be so well prepared, but you know, I don't want to, never want to ignore the obvious when you start talking about the more esoteric. Yeah. Um, so moving on to that for, you know, there are really kind of two scenarios where labs are helpful. And one is the, you know, the critically, critically ill, critically injured scenario with your unstable patient. And then the other is um, sort of more general clinic diagnostic labs. And the nice thing in reviewing the two um, most commonly used and well-validated point-of-care lab systems is that both seem to offer uh, the same uh, same capability in both of those avenues. Um, so we'll start with critical care since uh, you since you introduced me as an intensivist, and you're right, I've been practicing uh, quite a bit this week, and depending on labs, quite a bit. The the most the most important lab for the um, acute management, the, the you know, of the unstable patient and making you know minute to minute decisions, I think, is the blood gas. Um, and the blood gas con contains the pH, uh, which is super important. And I'll break down the importance of each um, in a minute. Um, and ionized calcium. Uh, and, uh, then your, your, um, uh, PCO2, your, um, um, partial pressure of carbon dioxide and your PO2, your partial pressure of oxygen. Um, the latter two are helpful for both determining, you know, whether 
helping you make a decision to take the patient's airway and put them on a ventilator as well as for managing a ventilator setting. Um, the pH is helpful for a bunch of different reasons. Mainly, it, it tells you, um, you know, how sick your patient is. And um, by sick, I mean, you know, how, how um, advanced their shock state is and are they in anaerobic or aerobic metabolism. Um, and, you know, normal pH is 7.4. Um, patients generally are pretty well compensated um, from both a hemodynamic standpoint. And by hemodynamics, I mean the function of the heart and the function of the blood vessels. And by the function of the heart, I mean its ability to contract forcefully and um, pump blood out, um, you know, through the blood vessels to the to the organs. And um, by the blood vessels, I mean their ability to um, constrict uh, in when you're hypovolemic, uh, the ability of the blood vessels to constrict and, and divert your lower volume of blood to the places where it's needed most in the body, specifically the vital organs of the, the heart, the lungs, and the brain. Um, below a pH of 7.2, um, you start getting into troubles with both um, cardiac output. Uh, the muscle just doesn't contract as forcefully at lower pHs, and, um, and the blood vessels don't constrict as forcefully at lower pHs. Another corollary with this regarding hemodynamics is that your catecholamine-based um, pressor medications, specifically epinephrine and norepinephrine, are less effective at lower pHs. And then the other implication of a lower pH, especially in our you know, military um, trauma um, uh, patient population, is that uh, blood loses its ability to coagulate uh, at pHs below 7.2, um, pretty um, pretty rapidly. You know, once it's your lesson, and this is related to um, uh, decreasing function of the clotting clotting factors. So, you know, the clotting factors are present in fresh frozen plasma. They're synthesized in the liver. Um, there are whole classes on you know what's the coagulation cascade and you know clotting factors. You know, two, seven, nine, ten, five. There, there's a whole there. There's a whole bunch of them, and they they start to lose their effectiveness as early as, as a pH of below seven point two five, where they can drop off by as much as thirty percent in their ability to um, stimulate uh, the formation of a blood clot, and they drop off rapidly. You know, to um, less than fifty percent and less than twenty five percent. You know, as the pH goes from 7.2 to 7.1, and at 7.0, you are, you know, super coagulopathic. So pH is super helpful because it gives you a snapshot, not only of how sick you are, how sick your patient is, but the possible physiologic um, uh, ramifications of how sick they are, specifically lack of cardiac output, lack of the ability of blood vessels to constrict forcefully enough. Uh, lack of pressors uh, to be effective at counteracting both of those two things and the ability of blood to clot. So I think if I only had one lab that I could take, you know, to my desert island um, to manage a critically ill patient, it would be pH. Your 
you know, PCO2 and your PO2 um, normals, respectively, are going to be uh, PCO2 of 40. Um, PO2 is, is a tricky one because everybody, you know, thinks, you know, well, 100 is good, but that's a SAO2. That's your oxygen saturation, and, and, and that's different. Um, uh, the partial pressure of oxygen depends on a bunch of things, but, you know, generally, um, you know, you want it. Um, less than 100 is, is bad, greater than 100 is good. You know, sometimes it can be higher. It can be in the 200s, 300s, and 400s if your patient is really oxygenating well. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I think that if you didn't have those, you could manage your patient very well with um, a pulse oximetry, an SpO2, an end-tidal CO2, an end-tidal CO2. But the, um, the blood best... Um, CO2 especially can be more accurate than um, an end-tidal CO2, so that would be helpful. Right. And then the last thing would be uh, calcium because, uh, you know, in a hypocalcemic state, um, that also affects cardiac output and um, blood vessels to contract. Um, We had a couple of really sick patients uh, last night who were hypotensive, um, and their cardiac output wasn't very good, and, you know, we were giving them push after push of epi um, and, you know, not gaining a lot of ground and really started to make some gains when we started giving up some calcium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So a lot of times we'll do that empirically and not have the lab, but if you have the lab that could help you decide, you know, whether their calcium is replete enough or not. And there you're looking for, you know, values kind of, above, you know, above 1.3 or so, you know, less than that, probably give more. As you're approaching to, you know, you've probably given enough. And if you're having problems with hypotension or decreased cardiac output, you know, your answer is someplace else. Mm-hmm. Um, I should circle back to pH as well and say that, you know, um, therapeutically, if your pH is low, then that should be an indication to give sodium bicarbonate if you have it, because improving the pH um, can Im- improve all of those factors. Uh, clinical factors that are affected by low pH, contractility um, um, of the blood vessels, contractility of the heart, and coagulation of, and, of the blood, and, and increase the effectiveness of the clotting factors. Okay. So I got a, a quick question about that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I hear this a lot from, you know, medics. They're, they're talking about, all right, well, my trauma patient, I'm assuming he's acidotic, so I want to give him bicarbonate. Mm-hmm. When I ask them, all right, well, what do you expect? Generally, they have no idea other than, well, sodium bicarb is a base, and I'm mm-hmm. going to make him more alkalitic, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I don't really understand for, kind of forcing that kind of alkalinity on on a patient without mm-hmm. necessarily attacking the, the problem of why is he that way? You know well, you I mean? That yeah, you, I mean, you get to the root cause of, of any um, you know unstable patient, which is you know the hallmark of treating any shock state, mm-hmm. you know whether that's hypovolemic or or distributive or cardiogenic, is to treat the shock state. The labs are really giving you an indication of how sick they are, um, giving you an indication of some things that you can intervene on temporarily while you're treating cause because treating the cause is absolutely the right thing to do but when the, when you know 
the body is deranged and out of balance and, and metabolism is out of balance, specifically the acid base metabolism. Um, you may need to support that as the body respond to help the body respond to your treatment. Okay. So you don't, you, ne- you never, um, treat acidosis, um, by fixing the acidosis, you treat it by fixing the problem, but you, um, resuscitate by, um, fixing the acidosis, you know, and that's the other, you know, that's the other hallmark of, of management of any shock state, you know, it's a two part solution. Number one, identify and treat the cause. And number two, give, um, um, you know, cause specific resuscitation. And we, you know, we talked about that in multiple discussions we've had about shock. Um, and we think about resuscitation, you know, at the 101 level as, um, you know, giving volume, volume in the, in the form of blood if it's, if it's hemorrhagic, um, you know, or in the form of fluid if it's septic, um, you know, potentially adding a presser. Um, and this is just, this is just a continuation of the resuscitation arm of uh, treating a patient in, in unstable shock. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely does. But yeah, you have to, you're kind of temporarily fixing the situation so that the body can then respond to your treatment. Right, exactly. Um, you're, you're trying to create better metabolic conditions um, for the body to respond to the resuscitation. Because if those metabolic conditions are uh, remain, you know, profoundly abnormal, you know, a pH of, 6.8, 6. 6.9, 7, 7.1, a, a lot of the resuscitation that you're giving, as I, as I said, with your pressors, just aren't going to work. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that's going on is when, you know, the body is that acidotic, it's sending out alarm bells to the inflammatory system, which is basically causing the um, driving the shock um, response to become, um, you know, more and more out of control. And at a certain point, you, it just gets away from you. And, and, you know, labs, labs, like I talked about, pH, um, especially even more so than lactic acid. I mean, lactic acid is, will, will tell you, yeah, you know, my patient's an anaerobic metabolism, but it won't give you the degree to which that anaerobic metabolism has affected the overall acid base balance and, and homeostasis of the body. You know, you can have a lactic acid of seven and a pH of 6.3, and that's not terrible. If you got the lactic acid, you'd be like, whoa, that's terrible. i got to do a lot of stuff. But you see a pH of 7.3, it's like, ah, oh, you know, I've got some time. They're compensating. You know, they may respond to my resuscitation. You can have a lactic acid of 2 and a pH of 7, uh, and, and that's a whole different situation. Then you've got, you know, you've really got a poor on support because your patient is slipping away from you. Right. Yep, understood. Um, um, you know, lactic acid is a nice to have, but that's why I made the distinction. And when I said, you know, my one desert island lab would probably be pH for treating intensive care patients, um, that 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 was the rationale for that. Okay. So, so blood gas definitely you want that in your bag, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Like electrolytes. Uh, what else do you think is helpful? 
in certain situations, electrolytes are helpful, right? Um, so uh, potassium for sure in the setting of, of crush um, or rhabdomyolysis, that can be very helpful um, because it adds, um, you know, a lot of objectivity to, you know, what we've taught previously, which is, well, you know, feel for, look for, monitor for PVCs, irregular um, EKG tracings or irregular heart rates. Um, if you have a pH, or I'm sorry, if you have a, a, a potassium, you can um, sometimes, in fact, frequently see the potassium elevated before all those abnormalities occur and, you know, potentially institute some therapy for that. Right. Um, so would, so would electrolytes be your, your, your second one to go into the bag or would you want something else? No, I would say electrolytes would be my second one. Um, potassium, an interesting one, you know, that I came across and I was reminded of when I was, you know, doing some research for this podcast is, is sodium. Um, and not so much from a high sodium, but, you know, in a hot environment, um, in, um, you know, uh, in a hot environment, um, where people are hydrating, if they're hydrating incorrectly and just taking in, um, water without electrolytes, they can actually make themselves, um, critically hyponatremic, give themselves critically low sodium, which can, you know, at the very least, cause them to feel bad, you know, slightly more worse. It can cause them to have altered mental status as, um, as the, um, um, sodium in, in, uh, brain cells leaves the brain to try to balance out the low sodium in the blood vessels and the brain cells shrink as water follows the sodium out of the brain cells. And in this, you know, severe case can cause coma and death. So, you know, if you've got somebody who's brought it in with, um, you know, heat exhaustion, uh, or heat stroke, um, or somebody just found, you know, in a hot environment, hyperthermic, um, you know, sodium can give you um, some indication of, of how bad that, uh, um, the damage that hypothermia is. Right. And I mean, that also uh, is kind of a word of caution to any medics that, you know, you find somebody who's in that hyperthermic state and uh, the old uh, two large bore IVs uh, full send. That may mm -hmm. not be the uh, best idea. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you've got two large four IVs and their sodium is low, and you start infusing a, a um, isotonic solution, you know, like plasmolite or Ringer's lactate, or you know, slightly hypertonic like normal saline, that's actually you know not bad. Um, if they're really hyponatremic, um, you know, sodium of you know 100, 110. Um, and they're really altered, you know, unresponsive, uh, it may trigger you to give them some 3% if you have with them and correct that hyponatremia more quickly before they spiral into, you know, coma and seizures and death. Yeah, yeah, definitely you want to catch it before that. Um, Correct. All right, so we got our blood gases, we got our electrolytes. Um, what about, like, things like hemoglobin and hematocrit? I honestly don't find those that helpful. I mean, they're going to come on all of these cartridges, you know, whether you're working with an ISAT or an EPOC, um, they can be a 
measure of your resuscitation, but they're really lagging in indicators. Um, you know, you can have somebody who is, you know, in profound hypovolemic shock from blood loss, um, and, you know, they haven't equilibrated their hematocritin or hemoglobin and it looks relatively normal. That should not deter you from giving them blood. Um, you know, and I think any trauma surgeon, anybody who deals with trauma surgeons on a regular basis is if the patient, you know, is in shock and unstable um, from blood loss, you know, you, you give blood, you don't, you don't look for a lab. Mm-hmm. Okay. It can be a sign of slow blood loss. You know, we had a patient last night with a GI bleed who came in and her hemoglobin was five, but that hemoglobin wasn't, didn't, that didn't get there, you know, right away from, from a GI bleed. You know, she'd probably been having a GI bleed for weeks. Um, and, you know, finally her hemoglobin got to the level that, you know, she had symptoms and came to the hospital. But that is not a situation that we see much in a deployed environment. Okay. Um, so how about... You know, things like renal labs, like creatinine or things like that. Um, again, helpful. Um, there's, there's helpful for gauge, gauging the um, extent of kidney injury. But, uh, you know, our clinical indicators of kidney injury specifically, they're not, they're not making urine. They're oligaric, um, I think, are just as good. Um, and uh, again, you can have somebody with a creatinine of seven who's making urine. Um, our, our, our anemic, uh, so we had another patient last night and that was the case. Um, uh, and you can have a patient with a relatively normal creatinine, well, not normal, but, you know, lower elevation in creatinine, uh, who's not making urine at all. And that's far more concerning. So. Um, in the acute setting with resuscitation creatinine doesn't help a lot. Okay. All right. I think more useful information for kidney function in the deployed setting is the urine dipstick showing the presence of blood in the urine, um, you know, which is a surrogate for myoglobin, um, you know, which is, um, uh, you know, going to be one of the aspects of rhabdomyolysis or crush, which is traumatic rhabdomyolysis that um, is most concerning and, and you know, leads, leads to um, severe kidney injury. Okay. Um, what else we got? Uh, glucose? I mean, that's an easy thing to bring along. That's a great thing. And uh, that is absolutely should be at the top of the list because, you know, in the differential of any unresponsive or altered patient is, is going to be um, alterations in, in glucose metabolism, typically um, for our population, because we don't deal with a lot of diabetics, it's going to be hypoglycemia. So you're right, you know, this probably the first lab that we grab um, on any ICU admission of an unstable patient is going to be a point of care glucose. Okay. Um, so, I mean, so far we got a pretty small list there, Doug. Well, um, you don't need many, honestly. Um, you know, we send out, um, obviously a long list of labs, but the ones that we focus on are pretty much the ones that I told you about, um, are are pretty much the ones I told you about. Right. 
So, I mean, that's also very helpful because you don't need to pack every single or order every single canister or uh, cartridge that they have. You pick and choose which are going to provide you the, the results that are going to actually help you move your patient forward, not just give you more numbers to worry about. Right. And, you know, potentially distract you from, you know, the important stuff and treat things that don't need to be treated or miss things that do need to be treated. Um, you know, and the good thing is that, you know, reviewing the, the cartridges from ISTAT and the cartridges from e e EPOC is that, you know, I, uh, EPOC I, it seems to have one cartridge with, you know, a pretty decent spectrum of labs. All of the important ones are included. All the, or at least the important ones I talked about are included. I think that's a little trickier because they've got a ton of cartridges, um, but the CG8 uh, is the one that includes, you know, pretty much all of the important ones. Yeah, perfect. Um, so I guess since you brought it up, let's talk about, you know, how do we go about collecting these labs? I mean, can I just draw from, you know, the, the blood from an IV that I'm starting? Correct. You know, you want to make sure whenever you do a lab um, that the blood that you're drawing is actually the patient's blood and that it's not mixed with um, anything that might still be dwelling in that IV. Um, you know, if you've disconnected uh, um, some IV fluid or if you just pushed a med through there, you want to make sure, um, you know, to flush that IV with uh, first you know, to, to dispel anything that's lingering in the IV into the bloodstream. Then you want to draw, you know, a few cc's of blood and waste it to make sure, again, that there's nothing that's lingering there, and then draw your lab. Um, the cleanest way to draw labs is to just do, you know, a fresh stick where, you know, you're putting a needle at the end of an IV and inserting it into a vein and drawing directly from the vein. Um, neither is bad that there's a few more caveats to drawing um, about blood for labs from an existing IV. Okay. Now, is there any real difference between an ABG and a VBG? The biggest difference is that you're not getting a PaO2, uh, ox you know, um, um, an oxygen level, um, partial pressure of oxygen with an ABG. I'm sorry, with a VBG. Now, like I said, the uh, the peripheral um, pulse oximeter is a very good surrogate. The, the, um, there is a, a lab on a blood gas that's called an SO2 or an SAO2, which is the arterial saturation of oxygen, as opposed to the one that you get from um, a pulse oximeter, which is a PAO2, a peripheral um, um, oxygen saturation. Both of those match really pretty well as long as you are able to pick up a good signal with your pulse ox. Now, where a PAO2 can be helpful is in a patient who's really in profound, you know, shock um, that's vasoconstrictive, so hypovolemic shock, cardiogenic shock, where, you know, the blood vessels clamp down and shunt blood away from the periphery to the vital organs. You may not have enough blood flow to pick up a good pulse ox um, signal. Mm. Um and so that's where your PaO2 um, uh, and really specifically your SaO2 um, uh, can be helpful. Okay. Yeah, very good. Um, what about actually collecting the sample? So we talked about drawing it out of a syringe. Um, mm -hmm. I know the iStat 
that I, I, that's the only one I've ever, ever used. And that was in a hospital. So we did an mm -hmm. ABG. We actually took it straight from the artery. Um, mm -hmm. But it's got these stupid little pipettes that it is freaking impossible to get a sample, it seems like, to go up this little pipette so that you can feed it into the machine. Um, <laughs> what am I doing wrong? Uh, well, actually, just to go back, and again, that's a good point um, um, that you made with the difference between a VBG and an ABG. The ABG has to be an arterial blood sample, so you're not drawing that from a from a um, peripheral line. You're going to have to stick an artery, and that, you know, that may be a skill that just um, doesn't get practiced enough to be practicable. Mm -hmm. um, so the other point I wanted to make about the difference between the two is really that the the pH and the pCO2 are close enough between a venous sample and an arterial sample as to be not that important. Yes, there are differences, and some people will make more of them than others, but um, you can get a very good, you you can and we frequently do get a very good indication of somebody's acid-base status and their pCO2 from a venous sample. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, some of the machines will even convert it. They will. Through that's an algorithm, correct. yeah. Yeah. But again, anything that's anything that's derived, you know, any, anytime you have to make calculations, you can in, in introduce measurement error. Whereas, you know, that you're getting and and the um, and and both of the cartridges will tell you, you know, what are our directly measured values and what are our um, calculated values. And I have you should have more trust in your measured values than your calculated values. Right. Um, um, so as far as loading these machines, um, it is tricky. Um, I think the, you know, the best way to do it is to, if you have some, a small syringe, like an insulin syringe, mm -hmm. um, that can more accurately dispense your blood, uh, that can be helpful. Um, but yeah, they are finicky and that's a, that's a known problem with the machines, you know, that talked about uh, a paper that I sent you on a, a comparison between the two systems that a big EMS system in Canada did that was a you know, pretty well done study with um, were very experienced paramedics and, and uh, a good sample size, you know, hundreds of patients for each machine, you know, noted um, that the EPOC um, had an almost 40%, you know, initial cartridge introduction failure rate and they needed to be reintroduced. Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of news to me because I think of the ISAT, which is what I have experience with and what most, what all the hospitals that I've trained, I've, I've worked in is we think about that as being pretty finicky. So, um, you know, you should probably for planning factors budget, you know, double the amount of cartridges you think you're going to use. Um, and plan on wasting fifty percent of them, and if you have less, then you just, that that's then you're then you're in the in the good. Right. Well, I mean, also, how much of that is just user error because of inexperience? Well, I imagine through the study they got better at it, right? But you know how it is. Like the first time you're doing it, you're like reading the directions and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings me to a point I wanted to make, not so much about labs, but, but about the whole idea of point of care testing and special operations. Um, you know, uh, these are not cheap machines. Uh, you know, the, the Google price of, a, of an ISTAT is, 
$6,500. Now I know with purchasing and, um, you know, discounts and volume discounts, it's probably going to come down. But, you know, you're looking at one of these machines potentially being as expensive as a point of care ultrasound system and a good um, ventilator, you know, like a, um, like an impact ventilator. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, would I rather spend that amount of money on a, on a lab system or, you know, a ventilator and ultrasound, the answer is easy. You know, it's, it's door number two. Right. Now, if you have your, your ventilator and your ultrasound and, and your, and the resources to, you know, um, advance your diagnostics with point of care labs, then for sure do it. But, you know, put that into perspective, you know, on a one to 10 scale with 10 being the most important, um, you know, ultrasound's probably a 10, ventilator's probably a eight or a nine, and labs are probably a two or a three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, that was a big, that was actually kind of a point of contention when we did our uh, review, our equipment mm-hmm. review, is the docs were saying, if you're going to have a ventilator, then you have to have, you know, some kind of point of care testing. Um, essentially mm-hmm. because, like, I don't trust that you know how to adjust anything. I disagree with that because I think you can adjust a ventilator just fine with an end tidal CO2 and a, and a pulse oximeter. Yeah, I think you can if you are switched on enough to know, like, globally what the hell is going on. Well, the 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 lab is not going to give you any different parameters. It's still no. going to give you an oxygen saturation, and it's still going to give you you know, uh, a CO2. Right. Um, now the CO2 is much, is more accurate, uh, is more physiologic on a, on a lab than it is as an end title because, um, you know, uh, because the, the end title CO2 can be affected by, by circulation, right? If you're not, right. if you're not perfusing the, Blood vessels, blood vessels in the lungs, because your cardiac output is low, then you're not going to be returning, you know, um, carbon dioxide to the alveoli to then vent out and be measured by an end tidal CO2 monitor. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a patient earlier this week who was in just profound cardiogenic shock. I mean, his ejection fraction was like five percent, and he was on. You know, we wound up putting him on a ton of mechanical support. And, and, um, initially his end tidal CO2, you know, remember normal PCO2 is 40. So that's, that's the partial pressure of oxygen in your blood. Well, his initial end tidal CO2 was only 11. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't mean that he had a, a, a bad respiratory alkalosis. It meant that he just didn't have enough circulation through the pulmonary vessels to, to get that, um, blood through the pulmonary beds into the alveoli and out the, um, and out to be measured as an end tidal. As his cardiac output improved, his um, end tidal CO2 improved. Uh-huh. That's one of the reasons that they talk about a good end tidal CO2 waveform during CPR as being an indication of good CPR. It shows that the CPR is, is circulating blood through those, um, through those pulmonary capillaries. Um, so uh, I guess I would partially agree with, you know, the experts that you, you talked about earlier uh, in terms of needing labs to manage the ventilator, uh, a CO2 is, is, is helpful and 
perhaps necessary, perhaps more necessary than um, a PaO2. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you can do a fine job of either. Right. Right. I think it's if if you know whoever's whom, whomever is using the equipment. You mm-hmm. know, I think just like anything else we do, you can't look at numbers in silos, right? Everything is in context with everything else, right? So right. like understanding that end tidal CO2 is going to differ from PCO2 because of, you know, problems with the respiratory system. Maybe it's right. there in shock. Maybe it's, he's only has one functional lung because of, you know, trauma or, uh, atelectasis or, or whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. But the closer you can get them, I guess the, the more healthy you can get, the closer you can get them back to normal, then the more these two things are going to mirror each other. Right. Right. Um, so it's, I don't think it's unreasonable. I, I definitely understood why, uh, the physicians were saying that they wanted it for their guys. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of a telemedicine, um, safety blanket thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody's calling me, telling me they don't know what to do. They have this, these, uh, lab values and hopefully mm-hmm. I, I can trust that they did it correctly. And through that information, I could probably more accurately help them. You know what I mean? Correct. Right. Um, but that being said, I would much rather have let them have an ultrasound, much rather have them have a ventilator and actually know how to use the two of them than I would um, point of care. But um, those things are getting a lot more common than they were even one or two years ago. Right. And the, the point I, I wanted to make, you know, in the acquisition um, uh, process of these, you know, kind of speaks to your um, comment about um, user familiarity and um, the reduction of errors um, and um, the equipment malfunction with the machines. And that is, um, you know, we have um, environments in special operations medicine where we could test these uh, systems, you know, on a relatively daily basis, um, and see number one uh, to both evaluate the two systems, and number two to build um, competency among the medics um, and the docs and the PAs. And that, um, and those environments are, you know, the battalion aid station or the equivalent thereof in, in the other um, in the other branches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would I would recommend, you know, if that's something that we're looking at pushing out to the team level before we, you know, made that big investment, put them in every tech set or team equipment equivalent, you know, put two in every aid station and use them in, in regular practice, you know, and the medics could rotate in and, um, and draw labs and, and troubleshoot the machines and, um, and get their values. Um, Number one, it'll be useful in clinical practice because you get heat exhaustion, you know, on a pretty regular basis. Um, and um, and then the, all the other numbers, you know, you can just use for training purposes. Mm-hmm. And then 
as confidence and, and, and as competency grows, um, you know, you can um, potentially field them more wide, widely, but make a better decision about which system is better. Cause I have a, you know, pretty good idea that we're not going to buy both systems. Right. Right. One of them's going to win the day. And generally it's not the, the medics that have the input on which one. And if you have two or three in the aid station that the guys can practice on and then you have a backup, you know, if the machine goes out of calibration or, or, uh, you know, needs servicing or whatever, um, then you have an extra one that you could loan out to teams that are going um, on a deployment uh, and they can take it with them. After, and part of their pre-deployment training would be, you know, to do some days in the aid station, drawing those labs, working with the machine, troubleshooting the um, the um, um, calibration of the machines, because that's, that's not trivial. There's a lot of frustration that comes with um um, dealing with these machines that have been miscalibrated, and if and if it's not done right, you know it's a it's a useless, you know, two pound piece of plastic, right? Uh, you know, six thousand dollar two pound piece of plastic. Yeah. Um, anything else you'd like to cover with uh, labs? Not that I can think of. Uh, anything you think I'm missing? Uh, no, I mean I. I think it, it doesn't have to be overly complex, um, but I definitely want, I would want to know um, going on deployment and, you know, now that we're, we're getting rid of different gear because nobody's used it for, you know, I don't know, 30 years, um, mm -hmm. but we do want some kind of lab capability. All right, well, mm -hmm. what's, where do we actually focus on? Because, I mean, you can get labs for literally anything you want. But right. if you don't know what you want, then then you're stuck. You know what I mean? You just get the entire package because that's easiest. Maybe let's be smart about it and say, you know, be more targeted and what exactly matters for our environment. Right. And that was, you know, what I was thinking about when you asked me on the podcast and, and as I was reading about the systems and, and thinking critically about how we use labs in our practice. And, you know, obviously from the stories I've told, you know, we had quite a few patients just in recent memory where, you know, I could look back on the resuscitation in the room um, of these unstable patients and, and, and reflect on, you know, what did I want to know first uh, and, and use that to help prioritize the recommendations. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Doug. You're welcome. Cool. All right. Have a good one. Thanks, Dennis. You too. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out. Oh.